Welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I'm Chelsea, and today I'm going to be sharing with you our part two of our talk with Dr. Stephen Kurtz. If you enjoy it, please go leave us a review and enjoy the episode. Um, play therapy. I know a lot of parents we see, you know, they think it's oh, it's a waste of time. You know, my child goes in there, I'm paying for treatments, and then they're playing a board game. Can you like just explain to parents, like, you know, what's the purpose of play therapy, like those first few visits? This is a very sensitive topic for me um, because I've argued that there's no therapy that's more playful than the model that we use. So the question isn't is play involved in the therapy, but towards towards what end? Now, you could take a knowledgeable, skilled therapist like Jolene Fernald, who does uh, DIR floor time, which comes more out of the autism world Mm -hmm. and adapted by her and some others for work with SM, she'll be doing play, but she knows what she's doing in terms of the eventual goal of helping kids in that model get through some developmental stages, but also working on public assignments for parents to do to help kids. So play doesn't, if, if I know that a child played checkers or spotted or headbands in a therapy session for SM, I have no idea in what way that was used. Mm-hmm. So okay. I, I, I have trouble concluding anything from it. On the other hand, any therapy that's been going on for weeks and months without some obvious gains, parents need to be good consumers and say, maybe this isn't the best fit for my kid. We had a parent come in uh, literally Friday who had already fired my practice. And I invited her to come in because I wanted to know, did we screw up somewhere? Hmm. And she said, you know, my nephew benefited tremendously from treatment X that you did for condition Y. And we did have every reason to think it would work for our kid. But as you know, every treatment doesn't work for every kid. So I think, you know, as good consumers, she had the right to put it under the microscope and say, this isn't giving us the gains we wanted. Hmm. They happen to be going a medication route based on believing that there's a biological underpinning to the disorders that they're concerned about. So, I, you know, it's a long-winded answer about play therapy, but undefined play therapy without knowledge about SM doesn't make sense to me. But hearing that there's play in the therapy... Uh, uh, like I said, I think our therapy is as playful as anything out there. So I, you probably, you just probably said this, but say it again to me, how many treatments, like as a guide then for parents, like how many treatment sessions would you say before a child should have, I don't know, be verbal or. When I, yeah, I know what your question is. When I was treating a six-year-old girl years ago, uh, we were at session 26 and I was going to her school early in the morning good classic therapy that we do, meeting with the mom and the kid in the classroom before the kids arrived, kid talks to me fine at the board, we did circle time, we played games, all good. Teachers on the other side of the room, if the teacher's facing away, the kid is doing fine talking. If the teacher turns five degrees towards us, the kid is completely shut down. That's session 26. Something's not right with this therapy if we're up to that many sessions and the kid can't tolerate that. So I went back, scratched my head, met with our colleagues, and we kind of developed a rubric of within a few sessions, we certainly expect kids to be talking to us with their parent not in the room. 
by six to eight sessions, we expect to have gone with that kid and made some other changes that they were successful with, either bringing in new people or going to new areas. By 12 sessions, we should definitely have been, in in our model, we should be somewhere else with the child talking to us, doing different activities without the parent present. Otherwise, we need to ask how, why the treatment isn't working like it usually does. That's kind of our guidelines. And is that specific to your practice or is that PCITSM? Like is- it's specific to uh, PCITSM and other, it's not specific to me or that treatment. It's our guidelines in general for the effectiveness of child treatments delivered with parents as agents of change. Mm-hmm. Or teachers involved. Okay. So I would say the same a, about OCD. I'd say the same about treating tics. I would say the same about treating depression. I'd say the tra- same about treating ODD or ADHD. If you're 12 sessions in and you're not seeing demonstrable change, I, I would question the, the therapy. If you practice out of a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic frame, um, they would not accept those expectations at all. Okay, good to know. I just like you hear so much in the Facebook pages, the kids have been going for like three years, and they're still not verbal. And I just like, what's, you know, what's, I shake my head, uh, every time I read those every, you know, every day of the week. Yeah, turns me a lot. Yeah. All right. And grasping for straws at CBD oils and Uh and things that just have no basis in the science. God forbid I have cancer. I want somebody who's read the journals, knows the evidence base for the treatments, and can go over risk benefits with me. Mm-hmm. Research shows kids have most success combined, would you say, medication and treatment? Not necessarily. I, I think one has to be, again, as a consumer, I think you have to be careful. What's reported as averages for groups may or may not apply to your to your child. So, there are lots and lots of kids we've worked with who have not needed medicine as part of their treatment plan. Mm-hmm. And there's lots and lots of kids we've worked with who've needed medicine as part of their treatment plan. Okay. And, you know, in that when you do, when you do um, lectures, you have to do a disclosure slide right after your title slide. You have to show if you have any conflicts of interest. Mm-hmm. You have to disclose that. You know, like if you get royalties from a book or you're on an honorarium for pharma or something like that. So my disclosure slide is typical Stephen Kurtz. It says, I have no financial disclosures, but I have another disclosure, which is the only thing I really care about is kids getting better and not having impairment. And I'm not a hero. I, if my board certified behavior therapy doesn't do it, then I definitely want meds to help a kid do the exposure tasks that they find so very difficult. So parent-child interaction therapy um, it's usually, well, originally used to treat oppositional and defiant behaviors. So can you go into how that was adapted for selective mutism? Yeah. First, let me just say how it got, uh, developed initially. Yeah. The 1970s, um, kind of post-World War II, people looking to get more evidence about what therapies were working. And we were, uh, having developments in what's called social learning theory and developments in behavioral therapy. And, uh, Dr. Eiberg uh, was out at Oregon working with some fabulous people, and a few different therapies were developed at the same time um, that are what we call two-stage therapies. The first stage was developing a positive relationship with the child, with the parent, 
And then the second stage was limit setting and discipline. So parents had to master skills in the first phase before they were given the green light to practice limit setting and discipline skills. I was well versed in that. I was trained in that. I became a master trainer in that. And that's when I developed PCIT adaptation for SM. I thought we really need the first part. We need relationship building so kids trust and are motivated by us. As you know, as a good uh, ABA person, you're not inherently reinforcing. You do things to be reinforcing, hopefully. Yep. We call it pairing. Pairing. There we go. Uh, then we could, with a paired association that was positive for the child with us, we could then start doing graduated exposures towards uh, challenging uh, anxiety exposure tasks. And that really was the thinking behind it, and that was the systematic uh, application of the same type of therapy. I actually had one kid I worked with who presented with me at the Boston conference a few years ago for whom my presence was a punisher. So for him, after he earned five points in school, he would point to the door and I would have to leave. Yeah. I'm not especially proud of that, but I do honor that that was the nature of the reinforcement paradigm. Yeah. yeah. Definitely been there, too. That's good. I've also been the other way around where I'm the reinforcer, where the kid gets to hang out with me. Yeah, it's more fun that way. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot better that way. It feels better. It feels better. <laughs> for me, yeah. Um, so we isn't, talked it, about isn't it interesting that the simple act, for example, of saying to the reference librarian, where's the children's section, or the simple act of saying um, vanilla when asked what flavor you want, that in one set of circumstances you can do it, and in another set of circumstances you can't. And it may be that the only difference is how reinforcing the person is who's helping you do it and how quickly you will access the reinforcer for doing it. I remember being with a kid on the steps at NYU when she was simply asking somebody, do you like dogs or what's your favorite type of dog? And she couldn't do the asking. She had her clipboard, she had her pen, all set to go and she couldn't do it. And she rehearsed it with me in the room, blah, blah, blah. And then I reached into my pocket and I said, silly me, I forgot your brave book. And I took out the paper reinforcer and then she was able to do it. And that's the mm -hmm. only difference yep. from 301 and 301 and 10 seconds, her ability to do it. So uh, we tried to be really meticulous with building the relationship and then using good shaping yep. and successive yep. approximations uh, after that. The SM bot, I was going to go into that. Was that. Did you develop that? Yes. You and your, okay. So can I ask, what is the SM bot? Yes, I take a thing and I bop you over the head. No, <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> no, I don't believe you. Um, in PCIT, we do an interesting behavioral observation task, mm -hmm. which is we have a kid and a parent play in a room and the parent follows the child's lead in the play. Then the parent leads the play and then the parent guides a cleanup. Three five-minute tasks that we code for the presence and absence of certain key behaviors. Mm -hmm. My adaptation for the SM bot was have a kid and a parent go in a room and play have the parent follow the child's lead in the play, see if the parent is at baseline pre-treatment, see how skilled they are at saying thank you for telling me or repeating back in a non-questioning way what the child says. Um, and then we ask them purposely to go ahead and ask some different types of questions to see if they do better with 
choice questions, open-ended questions, yes, no questions. And we got a lot of data and we learned that if we learned this, that if you're going to do one and only one thing to help a child, like imagine this, if we had to boil down 80 techniques to only one that you do, I see you shaking your head curiously. It would be to never again ask a yes, no question, which is very hard for people to do. And they try and do it and then they get mad at themselves and it's very cute. But it's a learnable skill to avoid yes, no questions because they bring out nodding, they bring out pointing, they bring out gesturing habits, which uh, these kiddos know all too well. Okay. That was a good tip for all the parents out there. Yeah. (laughs) Is it fair to say that this gives that alone worked, but that alone, (laughs) it's what we call necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. So can the, the SM bot that establishes like a baseline of, um, verbal interaction. Um, I think I read somewhere that also can show you kind of like a degree of severity of symptoms. Is that true? Yeah, we could tell how severe and entrenched the behavior pattern is mm-hmm. when we do that. It's a it's a pretty good measure of that. It's also a pretty good measure of what we're going to need to do with the parents to help them learn to tolerate distress of their child not responding. So mm-hmm. when we send the stranger in as part of this equation, which we do as part of the task, we see how the parent and the child interact with the stranger's presence. Yeah. Turns out parents, for example, talk lower when a stranger comes in Uh it's as if they're expecting and colluding with the child to take it down a notch because you know we both know this won't be successful so let's get it over with you start whispering to me and i'll interpret for you Mm -hmm. and i say that listen i say that with a smile and with all due respect to the fact that this habit takes on a life of its own i i don't say that with any sense of being judgmental or you see my face (laughs) i think you're behind the microphone (laughs) i'm just thinking like as a mom i i am guilty of that and i think i probably still maybe even do that sometimes but in my from my mind what i'm doing is not speaking for her i'm still speaking but i'm trying to like downplay my role so she can step forward and there and there are effective ways to do that for example if you say to a child you could practice telling me and then she'll ask you again. That's a good strategy. But most people, mm-hmm. nobody would know to do that without somebody right. teaching yeah. them. Okay. And the first couple of times that happens, you have no idea what you're about to get into. Mm. Lady comes up in the supermarket and aisle three and says, hi, sweetie, whose class are you in this year? And you say, she's, she's shy. She's in Miss Jones's class. You have no idea what you're about to get into as a repeated habit. Mm-hmm. Like with PCIT, what I really like is you're also teaching the parents skills, and that's great because that helps with generalization. And um, I'm just wondering, do you ever see, I'm sure you do, um, parents who feel like they're to blame or do they feel like they're being criticized for how they're interacting with their kids? The answer is absolutely yes. So uh, another thing I do with every family that I meet is I make them raise their hand. So you and I can see each other. Podcast, of course, they're only going to hear this. But yeah. go ahead and raise your hand and repeat after me. I promise. I promise. I will not beat myself up. I will not beat myself up. Over past mistakes. Over past mistakes. Because Lord knows. Lord knows. I did the best I could with what I knew at the time. 
did the best I, did I, the best I could with what, what I, knew I knew at the time. time. And you know, once you once you take that pledge, then yeah. we're good to go. You got to kind of forgive yourself. I've never met a parent who wanted this for their child. So, mm-hmm. but I think it's important to recognize that yes, you did some things that backfired. But who knew? But that's just normal reactions to that. I it think. is normal reactions. Okay. I know when Chelsea was little, I mean, I remember, I remember the specific day. She was three years old and we were laying in on her bed on our bellies looking at a book and it was the Bernstein Bears. And it was all about stranger danger. So, uh, you know, I thought I was doing a good thing. It was my duty to warn her, you know, it was to take the away 90s. the geese. <laughs> <laughs> and she was terrified of that book. It was, I never should have brought that book out. And I mean, yes, yeah, she was anxious before it and all that, but... I remember like, well, I'm bringing it up now and it's what, 25 years later <laughs> that, um, you know, like, I don't know, don't it was just an anxiety <laughs> provoking book. And I wished I had never done it because I did see after that. But, I always, the I, but the alternative would be not preparing her for stranger danger, right? So you're in a tough spot. Probably overprepared. It's just tough. You know, it's tough as a mom. Yeah. You know, uh, you forgot to pick up the manual when you left the hospital with her, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So let's see, we'll get into, so the first phase of PCIT would be child-directed interactions? Yes. Oh, I know we're kind of like rehashing everything, but it's good to hear it directly from you. So I kind of saw this a little bit when I was volunteering. It's um, child-directed, so there's no prompts to speak. It's kind of just rapport building. Yes, exactly. What that looks like. Um, Like, do you always start out with that, no matter what client you get? I always start out with that no matter what client I get. And I try to make it, for example, on the camp days that all the staff start out with that until they have reason to think that the child is ready for more. So if the child is spontaneous with them, that's a pretty good indication that they're ready to have a back and forth. But we like to give a warm up uh, warm up period for sure. Mm-hmm. How does, I, do we skip over this, the um, kind of like fading out parents and um, like the whole part where you're using like an earpiece and you're directing child's and uh, the parent's interaction with the kids? So typically the parent and child are playing together in a preferred activity. If I'm doing an intensive and going to somebody's home, I typically like them working on some craft activity when I get there. So I remember doing it with a six-year-old girl and it was Christmas time and they were building a gingerbread house. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to some other kid's house last year and he was really into drawing. So they were just sitting at the table uh, doing drawing together. Um, With that, we then try to fade ourselves into that interaction Mm -hmm. just using rapport building skills, which means we purposely avoid all questions or prompts to speak. And what it sounds like is a really good grandparent or aunt or uncle who's not trying to get the kid to perform in any way, but just hanging out with them, following their lead and their games, uh, and hopefully it's it's games they, they find enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And then the kid gets a sense of your rhythms. They get a sense of how loud you are, how quick you are, how funny you are, uh, how you kind of move, and it lets them feel a bit safer and then maybe ready to take your hand in trying an exposure, like answering a question. And then the skill when we shift over to the verbal directed is to make sure that the question reflects things that the kid is naturally interested in. Mm -hmm. 
I saw a report card today for the kid I'm going to work with in Spain, and he got uh, significantly above average in math and significantly below average in everything else. You could be sure the first academic task I'm going to do with him when I get there is a math test. Mm -hmm. Now, I happen to know him already, and we played card games, so I knew he was really good in math as well. So that wasn't a surprise. I can see it being kind of difficult for some people who aren't, like, really experienced therapists, like knowing when to move from child-directed to verbal-directed. So I'm yeah. wondering, do you have any tips for that? My tips are that in the presence of somebody else the child is already talking to, if they're answering 80% of their questions without wetting themselves, hitting the parent, you know, if things are going okay, and they're answering like four out of five questions, uh, then I'm ready to, to come closer to their interaction and give a try at, uh, at asking a good question. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also if the child is spontaneous in front of me, then it's a good indication that they may be ready for me to ask them a question as well. Uh, Again, these are guidelines, not rules. So you can't take it to the bank and you can't sue me if it doesn't work out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if say you moved ahead too quickly, what, are the consequences of so this. I, th I think that's a really really key question if you move ahead too quickly how do you rebound so we talk about always having a plan b and that means going back to the last thing the child was successful at and regaining uh behavioral momentum so going back to the last thing or if the task was tell the lady whether you want a cup or a cone and the kid thought they were ready for it, but then they panic or they can't do it. Panic is an interpretive word. Mm -hmm. If they can't do it, we could go five steps away and say, let's practice again. Cup or cone, sprinkles, no sprinkles, rainbow sprinkles, chocolate sprinkles, and we can inch closer. So it's having the confidence to go back and lower the task. But in all cases, it's the adult's responsibility to communicate to the child Silly me, I picked a task that was too hard for you just yet. Otherwise, the kid feels bad, they feel guilty, they might feel like they're in trouble. So I always take the hit on choosing the wrong goal. Mm -hmm. Always. That's important, I think. It's yeah. really important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a, as a supervisor and a manager, it's interesting if you go about your business assuming if something didn't go right that you may not have set people up for success in the right way and may not train them in the right way, rather than assuming they were lazy, bad, or stupid. You're just a wealth of information. <laughs> I know, well, I could talk I about do it. tend to get excited about this. So. this forever. <laughs> and uh, I have been doing it a while, so <laughs> hopefully I earn my seat at the table, I guess. Uh, um, so I wanted to talk about exposures, and when, I guess, when can you start doing these? Like, and how exactly can you explain it for families to start doing on their own? You, uh, again, tapped into one of my favorite things. I think that exposures is something that have to be done all the time. We talk about an exposure lifestyle. And the definition of an exposure is, for me, prompting a child to do something that's slightly out of their usual and customary. So for me to prompt my wife to order a Diet Coke with lemon when we go to a restaurant. That's not an exposure because it's predetermined she's gonna do that anyway, whether I prompt it or not. Mm -hmm. yeah. So an exposure by definition is something that's slightly 
outside the child's comfort zone. Actually, that's a good exposure. An exposure is something that's outside of their comfort zone. A good exposure is something that's slightly outside their comfort zone. So if you've never ordered in a restaurant before, and you've never even said your order to me with the waiter standing there, it's ridiculous to think that you're going to order for yourself with the waiter. Mm-hmm. It may be realistic that the waiter is there and you say, sweetie, practice with me. Did you want the hamburger or the cheeseburger today? And you've already kind of rehearsed that before you got there. That's an exposure. It's systematically rehearsing and identifying or identifying and rehearsing. And then in the actual situation, giving a go at using the, the new skill. Yeah, you guys ever hear about Vygotsky? Oh, we're going to get all philosophical on you. <laughs> um, now, you can't get Vygotsky as a guest because he died, I think, in 1934 or so. You can, you can take his place. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Russian uh, philosopher, psychologist. He talks about zones of proximal development. I'll, I'll give uh-huh. you what I think is a good 30-second summary, mm. maybe even 15 seconds. Um, there's what you can do without assistance. There's what you can do with assistance. And there's what you couldn't do even with assistance. Mm-hmm. So we're just trying to push the the things that a child can do with a little bit of assistance, just kind of enter into that territory uh, as often as we can, um, as often as we can with support. And eventually they'll do it and then they'll do it with less difficulty. I think experientially it takes kids about seven times of doing something in close order not before it's easy, but before they define it as doable. So saying your name when they do roll call, uh, ordering in a restaurant. Um, I think if you get seven of those kind of in close proximity, you start to get a little bit of self-efficacy, the belief that you can actually do it, but not that it's easy. So that so sounds, like, you know, as you a know. mom, that sounds like the reward chart, sticker chart. Like we used to make goals up for Chelsea each week and then practice it for the week and go back in and do the report. Do you use sticker charts with your clients? Sure. Yeah. So the moms have, they have homework. Yes. Kids. Um, we couldn't do this work without caregivers being trained. I wouldn't expect generalization of gains at all without that. And teachers, right? Yes, and teachers. Or an adaptation of um, teacher-child interaction therapy. Is that kind there, of the same? There, there is. Um, and there, we're usually not partnering with the teacher who, as the, at the same time we're working with the parent. Okay. Sometimes we do clinically. But uh, with this work with selective mutism, we would be out of our minds if we didn't plan for who is it that's going to go to school and help the kid use these skills in the school setting. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's us, sometimes it's a parent, sometimes it's a teacher. Depends who's interested, who's available, um, whether the kid needs the parent to be there first and then pass the baton to somebody in school. Yeah. Any tips for parents where they say the school just will not engage you know, we see that a lot online. Parents just say the schools would not allow them in there early or after, or they say they don't have time for it, which is kind of understanding in some regard, you know, schools today, public school. Um, I don't know. Any tips, though, if they're just getting resistance from the school? I don't think I honestly have any tips that would apply across the board. I, When I hear this individually, I just have to do my detective work to figure out who 
who I can partner with because as a parent, as a therapist, I can't afford to have a blanket, a blanket. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I try and figure out who, who to partner with. I recently was treating a girl, a 13 year old girl in Ireland for the whole week, spending the entire week in school with her and her three best friends who are my co-therapists. I love them all dearly. They all, they all got certificates at the end of the week. But before I went over, the school was concerned about, uh, it's just weird to have somebody come in school and, you know, be with kids. Right. Like a disruption to class. You know, they're concerned about child abuse. Oh, Oh, okay. You know, how do you, I mean, I know that I'm a good citizen. You don't know that. (laughs) I Uh, I was thinking more like as a kid with SM, I would be very embarrassed that I have someone with me. Of course. Um, And we happened to work it out. I think by including her friends, Mm -hmm. Um, it was, uh, it worked out brilliantly. Actually, just this morning, I happened to see some photographs of me on the day before we went to school. I went with her friends to mini golf and bowling <laughs> and to the arcade. And we just have a lot of fun, goofy pictures of us all together. So uh, I was, they were actually like showing me off. They weren't trying to hide me. It was okay. kind of, anyway, the school said you can come, but the only room we'll allow you in is the room next to the principal's office. It's our boardroom because we can see in it. I thought, no problem. They actually said, we need to have somebody in the room with you. And I thought, if they have somebody in the room with me, and if the kid shuts down because of that, and if I have flown 5,000 miles to get there, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, but, no, for example, when I'm, going, when I'm going to Spain, they gave me a bunch of rules. And uh, it's more rules than I want, but I still have enough flexibility to be able to get the job done, I think. So, uh, again, I don't have any blanket advice other than stay patient. And... Try to figure out what is the actual barrier. Is it the amount of time you're asking me to do? Is it the skills that I don't have? Because sometimes that can be fluid and you can work with that and kind of modify the expectation about what the what the actual barrier is. Mm. I want to say a little bit more about exposure. Like how do you keep a kid successful? And I guess we already talked about if an exposure is unsuccessful, you kind of go back to where the last point they were successful but I don't know what am I trying to think oh I'm trying to think about where how you explain generalization so only changing one variable at a time I was hoping you could explain that a little bit more if I'm with a six-year-old and we're playing headband spot it and uh, Monopoly Junior in my office and if it's going well with the parent there I could get rid of the parent, go to another room and get four new games. Mm -hmm. And the kid might be able to tolerate all that. Of course, I wouldn't bet that they would, but they might. Um, If I want to increase the chances of it being successful, then I would just have the mom inch out or I would take the mom, the kid, those four games and me and go to the different room together. Or I would swap out one of the different games in the same room with the mom still there to minimize the chance that I'm changing too much at once. Mm -hmm. Probably back in 2002 or three, when I was kind of developing this, probably I got burned by doing that. And then probably I scratched my head and said, how did I screw up this time? (laughs) And maybe that's when I said, oh, I know. Why don't we change one variable at a time? 
So in the end, you will be changing the location. In the end, you will be changing the people in the equation. And in the end, you will be changing the activities. But the word to the wise is you maximize the chance of success by only changing one at a time. And that's served us very, very well. Yeah, I think it's really genius. But then I'm I'm confused about how you would go about this in a classroom where obviously there's like a lot of kids to fade in. Like, is it possible to kind of accelerate that process and like you don't have to fade one classmate in at a time? I'd say it's possible. And um, that proves to be the case for a lot of kids. I do remember twins I was treating and the boy was a bit more impaired than the girl. Um, he just graduated high school. He's off to college. So this is a long time ago in second grade. And he said, I need to talk in front of everybody before I can just talk to my friends. And so I remember the red piece of construction paper that we wrote down every kid's name and just checked off that he talked in front of them. And that's what he felt like he needed. But that's not typically the case. Uh -huh. uh, but it is typically the case that I'm going to go with three games I did in my office and literally bring those same three games to the kid's school. Um, I did that with the cash register and the ice cream, the Melissa and Doug ice cream a couple of weeks ago. And I was really glad I did because as soon as the kid sees me come in with that cash register and that ice cream set, it's a learned association, a Pavlovian kind of conditioning that brings out that same, it evokes that same talking behavior that he associates with me and those toys from a different setting. Yeah. But in the end, you're going to change all, all three variables anyway. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, like for me personally, I, I never had PCIT, but I always found it easier, which is weird because uh, making presentations was one of the hardest things. But I would do presentations where I hadn't talked to everyone in my class before, but doing that showed them that I do talk and that kind of breaks the ice for the whole class in one act, yeah. which is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that as well. It breaks the, I know that you know that I know that I actually talk. Yeah. Like <laughs> even if it's not a direct conversation with your yeah. classmate. Yes. It's proof positive. Yeah. Chelsea does in fact speak. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's good. I remember being with a kid once and uh, doing a uh, pull out in a, OT room or something with a friend for the first time. And the kid looks at me and he says, he talks. I said, I know he talks. You like how he talks? He said, yes. I said, so tell him. He says, Michael, I like how you talk. And then they went on and played. <laughs> That's cute. <Aww>. That's great. <laughs> yeah, they're all, kids are always shocked. Aww. Well, they, do, but they have good reason to be shocked. I know. Yeah. It's just, That's cute. Um, you know, yeah. if all of a sudden I got up and, and went into a, a, a great tap dance, you know, with like top hat <laughs> king, and say, oh, my God, he does, he tap dances. <laughs> I didn't know he did that. Yeah, yeah it's true, right? Like, yeah. yeah. You only, perfect, yeah. makes perfect sense. Do you ever have parents, I guess by the time they probably get to you, they're they're on the same page, I would think. But I know a lot of times, you know, parents aren't on the same page. I find that usually it's the dads that don't really buy into the whole SM thing. Um, I don't know. I guess do you find by the time they get to you, they're they're both in agreement that there's an issue and they need treatment. But did you ever hear, you know, 
Karen yes, by the time they get to me, they're in agreement that there's a problem usually. They're not off. They're not always in agreement about what the steps are, um, especially when it comes to uh, potentially the role of adding medicine. That becomes something that separates right. groups uh, quite a bit. Good good therapists work hard to get both parents, or if there's more than two parents, work. Good therapists work hard to get everybody involved from the start and not take it as an assumption if one parent is in the room and the other, let's say, is at a, an outside job, not to assume that that means anything. It doesn't mean agreement or disagreement, but you really, especially for that first session, we'd like to get both caregivers in. So back to the, um, just before we finish up, we should probably, we're taking all your, we could sit here all day. <laughs> we're almost done. <laughs> um, so Beth, you know, you, it's kind of true what you were saying. I know I've said in the podcast before, you know, I have, my son, who was ADHD, actually, and then Chelsea, who had SM. Um, so, and being the girl with SM, she was always the, should I say, better behaved child, you know, quiet, whatever. But in talking with you today, it's brought back a lot of, I forgot, like about the um, oppositional kind of behaviors. And I think that those were what caused her, her dad and me to differ because he did see it as her being very oppositional, choosing to not answer, choosing to not listen to him. So he would punish, you know, and then that caused friction between us because I was like, she can't, you know, like you shouldn't be punishing her for that. Sure. Um, so it's just reminding me about the oppositional behaviors and, you know, being at school all day and not speaking all day and then coming home and letting loose with tantrums and, you know, crying and whining and, throwing herself on the floor and all that. Um, so how do you separate that SM, you know, what part of the relationship between the two, or is it a separate thing? Is it all one thing? Is it, how do you separate that? So it's a little bit of a complicated relationship. Um, here are some interesting considerations. Um, we understand the fight flight response. So you guys have been very well behaved. If we were in my office on the 10th floor and I attempted to throw you out the window, I don't think you'd stay so well behaved. Your, <laughs> your nice New Hampshire politeness would disappear. Pretty quickly. You would scratch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would do what you got to do to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so the op when the oppositional behavior, when the behavior that's being described as oppositional is almost exclusively in the context of people being pushed to talk when they're not comfortable enough to do it. That to me is not oppositional behavior. That's fight or flight. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. And this is not black and white, all or none, right? So Chelsea, although she was probably a very, very nice cooperative young girl, probably sometimes she could be oppositional having nothing to do with anxiety. So it's a matter of sitting with a therapist who helps you think through the relative amounts of this. If on the other hand, I say to a parent, in situations where there's no speaking expected, is she still an oppositional little brat? And the answer is yes, then that's an oppositional problem independent of the anxiety. Okay. And that's usually not so hard to, for parents to tease out for you. You know, you just ask them to imagine situations where talking isn't expected. You know, I can't get her to bring the dishes to the table. She's got an excuse for this, that, and the other. She breaks her brother's toys just to get back at him after he's rude to her. That's different 
and has nothing to do with selective mutism. Um, so we try and help people understand the behavior. If it's in the context of avoiding an anxiety provoking situation, then we don't think of it as oppositional. We think of it as uh, fight, flight or freeze. Okay, thanks. That's kind of, it's a good way to look at it for parents, I think, to kind of yeah. tease that out. Yeah. I had one last question, um, which I think I already know the answer to, but I just wanted to bring it up. Um, so do you focus at all on increasing eye contact or voice volume? And what is your thoughts on that? I'm what you call an outlier on this. Um, <laughs> that I have my opinions and a lot of people disagree. So uh, I think that eye contact is the last thing we have to regulate the intensity of an interaction. It's like fine tuning on an old radio dial. Um, eye contact always, in my experience, comes later with more comfort in the interaction. And I find if I don't command it or make it its own contingency that it self-corrects on its own. But let's take worst case scenario. You have a selectively mute kid, he's not talking to teachers, not talking to peers, not talking to some important relatives in their life. And then the kid is able to do that. And the only thing that he throws out as a problem is that he doesn't do good eye contact. You're going to still bless me. You're going to ask me, you know, what foundation you can donate money to. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be very happy. So I don't worry about that. Now, voice volume is another tricky one. Mm -hmm. um, I've learned through enough clinical cases I've done not to worry about whispering. Every kid who's ever been a chronic whisperer for me, with me, has eventually gone to regular voice, full voice talking. One of my favorite examples is a kid who co-present, he was in the Hear Our Voices panel at the Boston Selective Mutism Conference. And he talked about being a chronic whisperer and appreciating that there was no pressure because eventually his regular voice came around. By the way, if you ask speech language pathologists, they will remind you that whispering and voicing are completely different muscular arrangements. And whispering is actually harder on the body than regular voice talking. It's harder to whisper loud than to talk soft. Yeah. And here's what happens with most people when they whisper, if you try and get them to quote unquote, use a regular voice or a, a, a full voice, usually they'll just whisper louder. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I tend to focus on it less than other treating providers that I know. So you don't tend to see people or kids that are kind of stuck whispering. I've always found that. Ever, ever, ever. I, I had a yeah. kid who got better except that he still whispers. I remember once I started talking, I was always frustrated because people would still say, like, I can't hear her mm -hmm. or, like, you like I can barely hear you you're whispering and then and she wouldn't repeat like, herself but it felt like I was being so loud and like oh yes yeah oh there's a great lady who's not in the SM circuit anymore her name is Audrey Boggs she was in the SM world professionally before I was and she tells of an anecdote of getting in trouble in school when she thought she was yelling and in fact she was only whispering but she thought she was yelling Okay, those are my questions. I well, I just, I can't thank you. And we were, <laughs> uh, we'll be, we'll fess up. I mean, we were, I think Chelsea, she'll probably be mad at me for saying this, oh, but should. I think there was some anxiety. There was some anxiety surfacing over this interview. It was like the most coveted, you know, we kept talking about Dr. Kurtz. 
but we never like we never dreamt that you would agree or that we would even could ask you to come on this little podcast of ours. I think I gave Chelsea some grief by email why she didn't contact me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because we did. Yeah, we did a whole episode on your PCITSM, yeah. but I just it never crossed my mind to reach out to you and ask you to talk to us. It's, a, it's fun to connect with you guys again, and I'm glad to share this time. Believe me. We can't tell you how thankful we are to have you come on. You know, we truly appreciate you giving up mm-hmm. your time to come on and talk with us. My pleasure. Um, you, you need to write a, a mom book. A mom book? <laughs> you need to write a mom book. <laughs> like in mom language? Just, you know, you know. Yeah. What do you mean? The, the book that I never picked up at the hospital for SMC, oh, right? right. right? Oh, right. A handbook. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah so, um, so thank you so much. Maybe down the road we can do a part two. <laughs> no way to find me. Yeah. All right. Okay. Want to say anything to Dr. Kurtz? I don't know. I mean, thank you so much. Um, I get. Oh man, I have another question about your PCIT training. Like, how could I get involved in that if I wanted to be? Oh yeah, certified. So, folks who want to find out about trainings, so you just email me. You can put that in the show notes, I guess. Okay. Uh, but it's s Kurtz. S-K-U-R-T-Z at KurtzPsychology.com. And we'll be posting trainings there. And we keep a very extensive mailing list. So if folks want to find out about future trainings, we're happy to uh, make that available. We're doing two kinds of training. One is a two-day intensive limited to six, a ratio of six to one, so that there's plenty of time for skills practice. Mm -hmm. Then also the option of continuation for certification, which is uh, getting to review some tapes over the course of a year and make sure that okay. uh, people are able to apply it in clinical practice. Oh. Okay, and just before we let you go, I'll just again give out your um, website. KURTZpsychology.com and selectivemutismlearning.org, all one word. Okay, and Kurtz is K-U-R-T-Z. And then did you say also you were having, is it a Facebook live event coming up? Yes, next Saturday on the 29th. Yep. So folks, look on uh, our webpage on Facebook, our Facebook page, I guess. Uh, They'll have access to that. And those things are automatically recorded Mm -hmm. as well. But if you're in the New Jersey area, it's in Morris Town Library. Okay, that's wonderful. Great. Yeah. Good. Yes, that's a great event. So that's open to anyone. Just sign on and um, anyone can have access to that. Super. All right. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much.